Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 33. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Elohi, Elohi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author John Piper once wrote, life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What was once foolish to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. This is the moment that we have all been waiting for. This is the part of the narrative that all of Mark and really all of redemptive history has been pointing to. This here is the climax of the story. This is the height of the battle. This is the place where all that was promised in Genesis chapter 3 comes true. The seed of the woman has been bruised by the serpent. But the serpent, as we will see, will have his head crushed by him. This is the moment of victory. This is the moment when the tide of all of history has turned. The moment the king, our king, slays our enemy. I've been been thinking about this point in the story for a long time. As we said earlier, a famous scholar once said that the Gospel of Mark is really just a passion narrative with an extended introduction, right? Because it's a fast-moving narrative that rushes to this moment of Christ on the cross. And, and because of that, right, I've spent a long time thinking about this text. I've been thinking about it for quite some time and, and how to approach this text and how to, how to proclaim it because, right, this is the moment that everything builds up to. And so I want to do justice here. I want to declare for you the truth of of God's Word clearly and and concisely. And 
I want to present to you the riches and the beauty and the glory of this text and the overwhelming promise that it holds for all of us. And it is my desire that if you have not truly heard the gospel and repented and believed in Christ, that you would hear this text preached and that you would turn to God in faith and be saved today. It's also my desire that, that if you do know God and that you have already been saved, that you would hear this truth in this text and you would grow in your relationship with Christ. That you would know Him more, that you would fall more in love with Him and become more like Him as a result. And my final desire is that if you have been growing in your relationship with Christ, this text would pierce your heart for those who are lost. That, that it would mobilize you to take action, to follow Christ wherever He leads you on His mission to, to save sinners. That's the, that this text would urge you to joyfully take up your cross and follow Jesus. By the way, this has been my desire for this entire series. That's the goals that I had set for this series, that we proclaim the gospel so that those who don't believe will believe, exposit the truth so that believers would grow in Christ, and then exhort believers through the Word of God to take action and follow Christ. That's what I've sought to do with every message. That's what I seek to do today, but let me be honest with you. I have struggled I have struggled to prepare for this. And it's not that I'm not familiar with the text. It's not that I haven't studied this text. I'm very familiar with this text. I have read it over and over and over and over again. And I have read commentaries and I have studied the original language on many of the words that we're going to talk about. I'm familiar with this text like I am every time we approach a text. In fact, that's part of the problem is my familiarity with this text. You see, the reason why I struggle with this text that, that I'm prepared for is I can't even hardly think about it without it bringing me to tears. I can hardly read this text without weeping. Even now, this whole morning, I've been fighting back tears. Then we have to sing songs like we did this morning, and then we have to listen to Matt pray like he prays this morning. And, and the truth is, I know I know that this text is about the victory of Christ over our enemies. I know that this is actually something to celebrate, that our king conquers sin and death. I know right, that this is a picture of the intersection of God's justice and his mercy. And I know that we, that we as we celebrate Valentine's today, right, that by God's sovereign hand, we're talking about the greatest expression of love of all time. I mean, Paul tells us in Romans, that God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? In fact, scholar and pastor Don Carson once said, it was not nails that held Jesus to that wretched cross. It was His unqualified resolution out of His love for His Father to do His Father's will. And it was His love for sinners like me. I know these things. And it's my desire to express these things, but I must confess I am overwhelmed at the spectacle of the cross. I am overwhelmed by this story. Because simultaneously I am moved to great joy, but I'm also at the same moment moved to deep grief. Joy because of the overwhelming love of God on display. Grief at the horrific cost that was required 
to set me free. And as a result, I, I want to preach this word authoritatively and boldly. But I fear I will preach it tearfully. And so with that, I'd ask this morning for your patience as we approach this glorious passage of Scripture together as a church family. So turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Excuse me. Beginning in verse 33. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. What you need to realize is all three synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The synoptic gospels means because they're very similar. They, have, they cover really the same ground. Those three gospels record the fact that there was a three-hour period of darkness beginning at noon that lasted until three in the afternoon. And even though they all talk about this darkness, not one of these Gospels actually explains how the Gospel comes about. Right? They just simply state that there was darkness in the land. And what it means by the land, by the way, contextually speaking, is the land of Judea. Some people will say, well, there's a global darkness. But the thing is, is that this doesn't fit actually with the Greek language in the context here. Uh, this is a darkness that was really you know, centered on Judea. This is where everything was happening anyway. And, and it was indeed a physical darkness. Right? But, the, but the Gospels declare that there was real darkness. It just doesn't tell us what happened, how it came about. Now, when I was younger, I heard somebody say, well, the reason why there was a darkness is because there was an eclipse that happened at that time in history, you know, during the crucifixion of Christ. But the problem is, is if you know anything about astronomy, that, you know, that the, the Passover was around the full moon, and you cannot have a solar eclipse during a full moon. Those things are just mutually exclusive. And so we can rule that out really, really quick. And then other people have said, well, it was storm clouds because, you know, it could storm that time of year there and become dark. I mean, we have seen that happen the last few days, right, right here in Boron. And also that it could be, you know, the sun could be blocked out by, by dust, you know, because of the wind that would blow out there. Again, something we in Boron are quite familiar with, right? But the truth is that the, the natural source of this darkness is really actually irrelevant anyway, right? Because the actual source of darkness be it clouds or dust or whatever, is ultimately God himself, right? God himself made the land dark. The, lark, the, 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 the land became dark because God himself caused it to be dark at this point in time. He caused it to be dark, by the way, in the brightest part of the day, noon to three, right? And he did so as a supernatural sign, right? A sign... That is to, that as we've seen throughout the Old Testament, that we recognize that this is a sign of God's judgment, right? In fact, in Exodus chapter 10, we see that parallel made very, very clearly. Also, Exodus, you know, is around the Passover. This is the Passover, so there's going to be a lot of parallels here, right? But we see in Exodus chapter 10, the ninth of the ten plagues that God did through Moses as an act of judgment against Pharaoh and the nation of Israel. The ninth plague was to create darkness in the land. Exodus chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 21, kind of makes that clear. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. That three days is not accidental. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from their place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light 
where they lived. This text in Exodus reveals God's judgment against Egypt. It's also, by the way, a foreshadowing of the three days that Christ spends in the grave. But it's also the basis for us understanding this three hours of darkness in this text. You see, this darkness is a clear sign from God, a sign of God's judgment. The darkness means that God is pouring out His judgment. The question I think we should ask is on whom? Right? On whom has this darkness come? On whom is God pouring out His justice and His judgment? And we know in this moment it's not Judea. Right? Everything's fine there for, for the most part. That judgment doesn't come for another 40 years in AD 70. And we know that it's not being poured out on the Romans. The Romans are in power, and they're moving and growing all over the world. So who is this judgment falling on? This judgment is falling upon Christ Himself. Christ is the one that's being judged. God's judgment and God's wrath in this moment are being poured out on Jesus Christ. Why? Because on the cross, the King, Jesus, who is the second Adam, our federal head or our representative, He has taken upon Himself our sins. And God, in this moment, is punishing Him for our sins. That's what we sang this morning. Behold a man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. The darkness was a sign of God's wrath and judgment for our sin upon Christ. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. God the Father laid upon His own Son, perfect as He was, all of our sins, all of our iniquities, He laid upon Him all of our transgressions and all of our failures and all of our malice and all of our hate and all of our lust and all of our unfaithfulness and betrayal and bitterness and our rebellion against Him. God took all of our sin and laid it upon Jesus and then punished Him for it, judging Him for it. Paul further says in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So what we see in this text is the judgment and the justice and the wrath of Almighty God that has fallen upon the spotless Lamb of God. And that actually helps to explain then the next verse. The next verse we read, And at the ninth hour, which is three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Elohi, Elohi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've heard this verse explained a few different ways. And And I found that there are a number of people who intentionally and some unintentionally 
diminish the depth of Christ's suffering on the cross by stating, well, what Jesus is doing here when he says that is he is just crying. In, he's, he's not crying out in anguish, right? Because of suffering, right? they say that what he's doing is he's reciting the first verse of, of Psalm 22 to draw the audience into this experience where they see and know the verse and realize that it was being fulfilled in their time. They say that his, he shouts out loud in his voice the beginning of Psalm 22 in order for the Jews to recognize the psalm and then realize that this prophecy is being fulfilled in their hearing. They say that this is not a cry of anguish, but it's a declaration. Now, I don't deny that Christ in His divine nature and His divinity and His sovereignty is making a point to draw people to see this Psalm 22 because this whole episode fulfills all of that, right? But that is not the thrust of the actual text itself. Notice it says that He cried with a loud voice. This Greek verb for cried does not give an impression of a declaration of facts. It just doesn't. Right? This Greek word actually is loaded with emotion. Right? This actually is a better way to say it. it's a desperate cry. Right? This word means to make an urgent distress call, to summon intensely because someone is sorely in need, in need of a response. This is a desperate cry out loud. Christ cries out loud in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because, because in His humanity, in His human nature, He is absolutely in horrific anguish in this moment. The very justice of God and the judgment of God have been poured out on Him, and His cry reflects a sobering reality. The Father, in fact, in, in this moment... The Father, in fact, in this moment, is turning His back on His Son. The Father is forsaking Christ, the Son, in His humanity. Why? Because the sins of the world are upon Him. God the Father cannot look upon Him. God the Father cannot have fellowship with Him because of the sin. He must, by His own nature, forsake Him. And the moment he does forsake him, Christ literally, grief-stricken, cries out. Because here's the reality that we must think through. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. When Christ came into the world, he was born without sin in his humanity. Humanly speaking, he didn't have any sin at all. He was spotless. And because he was without sin, unlike the rest of us, and like the rest of humanity, he was not separated from God the Father. Christ the Son, in his humanity, because he was without sin, had communion and fellowship with God the Father continually. In fact, that is what Christ has, that's all he has ever known is communion with the Father. Because Christ in his divine nature has eternally been present with the Father. And so Christ in his human nature was born and remained because of his sinless nature in close fellowship to God the Father. Remember his baptism makes that really clear. Chapter 1 verse 9 says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, 
And when they came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Okay, I don't know about you, right? I've had experiences where I believe God was speaking to me, but I have never, ever seen God's presence in heaven and never heard his voice audibly talk to me like this. This is a reflection of the relationship that Jesus had always had with his Father. Christ in his humanity had direct access to God the Father because he was sinless. And he, and he lived his entire human life continually in fellowship with the Father. I want you to think about this. Christ was never at any point in his human life alone. Christ was never out of fellowship with the Father. Christ enjoyed, while he was on the earth, continual intimacy with God, the kind of intimacy that we were created for but lost because of our sin. Christ walked in close, intimate fellowship with God the Father his entire human life. And as a human, that fellowship was everything to him. But then on the cross, for the first time in Christ's human life, God the Father, because of that sin, broke fellowship with him. Would you think of the impact of that? Think about the most important, precious human relationship you've ever had in your life be it your parent or your spouse or your friend or a child, right? somebody who's the most important person in your entire life. And imagine that relationship is one of, of cherished love. That relationship defines your life. Imagine that person that you love so deeply and dearly looking at you and then turning around and walking away, turning their back on you, forsaking you, leaving you. That is but a shadow of the reality of what Christ and his humanity was enduring. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words from a literal broken heart. Jesus and his humanity was experiencing the deepest sense of loss that anyone could ever imagine. In that moment, Christ, the man, lost everything. By the way, this is why the fall is so devastating. This explains for us why the fall itself is so devastating, because that's exactly what we lost. We lost everything. We lost intimacy and fellowship with the God that we were created to be with, that we were created to reflect. We didn't just miss we didn't just miss out on a few things. We lost the blessing of God's presence. The problem is we just don't miss it in our hard hearts before we were believers. We didn't miss it. The reason why we didn't miss it is we just never had it. Now those who are in Christ today have a sense of it because when you come to faith in Christ and when the Holy Spirit dwells in your heart, you begin to to sense the presence of God in your life. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know what I'm talking about. Right? If you've been a Christian for any length of time in your life, you know the peace that comes by being in the presence of God. You know what it's like to have intimacy with Him, and you desire it when you don't have it. The Christian life on this side of heaven tends to be marked by the times where you experience deep intimacy with God, and you, you sense His closeness 
But then there are those times where sin or apathy or just being distracted by everything else in the world gets in the way, and you don't sense God's presence quite so much. And it seems distance, and you, distant, you begin to miss Him. Right? If you are a Christian and you don't sense God's presence, you will desire it. I know that I have. It's been like that my whole Christian walk. When I'm close to God, I feel His peace. I feel content. I feel His strength. I see Him move all around me in the lives of people. But when I stray, I, fear, I, fear, I feel weak and fearful and out of control. And I long to be back into His presence. That, by the way, is what draws us Christians back to what? To the Word. Because we know that's where we begin to, to renew that, that closeness. That's what draws us back to prayer and, and fellowship. But the truth is, this loss of fellowship with God, that's the human condition. You wonder why people are miserable because they're rich and famous and have all that they want and they're still miserable and they hate everybody and they're, they're killing themselves? This is why politicians are the way they are, corrupt and bent and broken. This is the human condition. There's something they can't have. This is the default mode for humanity. That's what Christ was experiencing on the cross. He was experiencing what it means to be fully human in this moment. He stepped off into the darkness without the fellowship of God. That's why he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His anguish was very real. His pain was real. His sacrifice is not some show. It was real. Because Jesus, for the first time in his entire human life, was completely alone. Just let that settle into your heart. We all know what it's like to be alone. But Jesus, on his way to the cross, was abandoned by everybody. His followers, his friends, his countrymen. As we saw last week, everyone rejected him. Everyone rejected him. Everyone. He was humanly alone. But up until this moment, the Father was with him. But now Christ stands at the precipice of death. He endures the judgment and the wrath of God. The, the Father, right? The Father, because of our sin, in the height of Jesus' pain and anguish, in the moment, the worst part of the battle, the Father turns his face away. Christ becomes completely. Utterly, totally alone. As we sang this morning, how great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away. What a devastating price that had to be paid. But here's the thing that we all have to come to terms with. This is the fate of all those who don't trust in Christ. This is the sobering reality we must come face to face with. Is This is the fate for those who do not trust in Christ, those who do not believe. When they die, they will step off into the darkness of death completely alone and cut off. And when they step across the threshold in the unknown, they will go into the darkness alone. Only then to face on the other side the awful and terrible an eternal wrath of God. That is the fate 
that Christ took upon himself to save those who have faith. That is the faith that we have been rescued from by Christ. But this is the faith that for all those who, who reject Christ, who say he is not my king, they will die alone and will stand and receive the full judgment of God upon them for their sin. But not so for those who are in Christ. Have you ever wondered why Christians can face death so bravely? It's because they know they're not alone. They know that they're safely in the hands of God. And they know that, that it is not darkness that awaits them. It is the light of God's love and His presence that awaits them. Standing next to my mom, as she lay dying in the hospital, Kim was holding her hand, and Kim asked her, are you afraid? And she turned to her and said, no. Because she was not alone. And she knew she wasn't alone. And she knew that it was God himself that would see her safely home. There's peace. There's peace for those who are in Christ because they know what awaits them. You see, Christ stood alone in the darkness so that you don't have to. If that's not enough to make you praise Him the rest of your life, then you don't understand what's being said here. And then in verse 35, Mark records, And some bystanders hearing it said, Behold, He is calling Elijah. Apparently, Elohi and Elijah sound very similar in the um, Aramaic language. Especially when someone has had their mouth deformed by being punched in the mouth so many times. And some people who were passing by said that he was calling out for Elijah. And that would make sense because, because the Jews at the time believed that, that Elijah would come and rescue truly righteous people. Right? They believed that. And so they thought, well, Jesus must be crying out to Elijah to come save him. And then it says in verse 36, And someone ran and filled a, a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Now, I've read a number of commentaries on this section, and there are many wide-ranging perspectives on exactly what's happening here, and there's just way too much to go into detail here. As you know, I have a tendency to go long anyway. So, so instead of going all the details here, I just want to share with you some clues that I believe help us to see what's actually taking place here. First of all, sour wine is not the same kind of wine that was mixed with the narcotic myrrh uh, that was offered him initially, right? This is different. This is not the same thing. The sour wine that, that, that they were offering him was actually a very common, cheap beverage in the first century. Rich people drank new wine or good wine. Poor people had sour wine. Basically, it's a cheap form of alcohol. And for those of, those of you who like to drink beer, this is like worse than natural light or something like that. Okay? And so because it was cheap, it was popular with the Roman soldiers. Right? In essence, this is the blue-collar kind of drink. Now, given that it was popular with the soldiers, and given that if someone was going to approach Jesus while he was on the cross and give him something to drink, that would require the Romans to give them permission to do so. It's actually highly likely that it was a soldier himself that was giving him wine to drink. Another thing to consider is this wine was, had a high water content and actually 
would quench someone's thirst faster than water itself. Um, it's, it was actually really a common way in that time for someone to rehydrate themselves was to drink this sour wine. Now, the question we have to ask then is, why would a soldier want to quench Jesus' thirst and rehydrate him? It was to prolong his life and his suffering. You see, the context, contextually speaking, this expression, let's see whether Elijah will come to him, you know, come take him down, is actually an expression of mocking to Jesus. Right? Someone says, Jesus is crying out to Elijah to rescue him, and the soldiers give him something to drink to hydrate him and prolong his life and suffering, and then says mockingly, well, let's just see if that dude shows up to, have, to rescue him then. Let's just give him a little more time. It's really kind of the idea, and what we need to realize is what we're being told here is that Christ is being mocked and despised to the very last moment of his life. That's the point. They're mocking him all the way to the very end. No one stood with him. No one was for him. And then in verse 37 it reads, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. I love this verse. I truly love this verse because I now understand what this verse means. For so many years, I've read this verse, right? And I knew that this is the moment where Jesus died, right? But I never fully understood the significance of what's being said here. The problem is, is that we face is we read this verse, right? And, and what we realize is Mark, like he always does, actually doesn't take a lot of time to to express too many details. He's very concise in what he says. He doesn't elaborate right, on the details. This is a historical narrative. And then given that we're 2,000 years removed from this event, it makes it even more complicated, and the fact that we're reading this in English rather than the Greek that it was written in, it's easy for us to miss the important details here. Yes, this is the moment that Jesus does die. But in this verse, we see how he dies. You see, all my life I had this vision of Jesus crying out in agony and then dying. Because this expression in English is similar to what we just saw in verse 34. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. It sounds very similar in tone and in texture. Right? In English, it seems that both of these are communicating the kind of the same idea of emotional anguish. And this is compounded by the fact that I've watched a lot of TV in my life and a lot of movies. Right? I remember watching Willem Dafoe portraying Jesus on the cross quietly and dramatically going, it is accomplished. And then he hangs his head like he's, like he's died, right? Even The Passion of the Christ, which is a movie I've seen probably about 50 times, Jim Caviezel's portraying Christ on the cross, and what does he do? He whispers, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then he exhales and slumps over. That's, that's what we see. That's how, how Jesus dies in the movie. Right? But hear me, that is not, that's not how he died. That is not what this text is communicating. Now, yes, he does say those things. He does say, right, it is finished. And he does say, Father, into my hand I commit your spirit. Right? But those things are are recorded in the other Gospels, and, and they, are, they absolutely are things he said, but Jesus did not quietly and softly go into the night. Jesus did not 
whisper his last words and then fade away. Notice what it says. He uttered a loud cry. Jesus didn't whimper and then die. He didn't whisper his final words and die. He uttered a loud cry, which again, in English, doesn't really do justice to what's being communicated because the English word uttered is really an understated word in our vocabulary today. Because what does it mean to utter something? It means to say something. It means to speak. And in my mind, when I hear someone say that they uttered something, I'm thinking they quietly uttered it. In fact, when I hear that word uttered, I always come back to Gandalf the Grey, standing with Frodo, and he says, the languages of Mordor, which I will not utter here. Right? Get this sense that it's going to be a quiet utterance. But here's the thing what we need to understand. The Greek word that's used, that gets translated as uttered, actually means to send away with force. It means to release. Right? So this expression is better rendered as Jesus released a loud cry. He sent away a loud cry. That's more like the sense of the text here. Because think about the context. Christ has been doing battle with the spiritual forces of darkness on the cross, and it makes more sense that he would release a cry, a light, a, I mean, a loud cry rather than utter a loud cry. And more to the point, the expression loud cry is from the Greek word megalon, which is the, where we get our word mega from. It means sound or cry. And it also comes, excuse me, it means, it means loud. And then, then also the second word is phonine, which is the word sound and cry, um, which literally means mega phone, right? The loud cry, the, that, the Greek root of that is what we get translated into our language as a megaphone that emphasizes the point that this was an extremely loud cry, right? And more to the point, the expression here, this loud cry, is attached to a different word than what we just saw. In verse 34, Jesus, it says, emotionally issues this loud cry of desperation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? That's what happens in verse 34. That word is riddled with emotion, the one that precedes the loud cry, right? But here we see this loud cry is actually related more to a guttural cry. This is not an emotion of desperation. This is, this is a strong, forceful cry. Here's the idea. This is a battle cry. That's what this is. This last cry that Jesus cries out, the context and the, the Greek points out that Jesus is issuing a battle cry. And we, we're familiar with what that sounds like, especially when a battle's been won. We've all seen enough movies, we've watched enough sports to see what happens when somebody's victorious in, in a hard-fought battle. What do they do? They lift their arms and they just, they just scream. They just shout. If you've watched the movie, um, if you watch the movie uh, Braveheart, remember that? where they defeat the Scots. He can't even talk. He just looks at them and he just screams, right? That's the idea here. Well, why would this be a victory cry? Why would this moment be a cry of victory? Because Jesus just said, it's been finished. Well, what's been finished? Let's look at Genesis chapter 3. 
Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On you, on your belly, you shall go, and the dust and and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then we get to verse 15, and we find the very first proclamation of the gospel in the Bible. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And notice, he, not they, he, the offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, the Messiah, the King, went to the cross in our place and took upon Himself all of our sins and drank down every last drop of the cup of the the wrath of God and His judgment and slew His enemy. And when He was finished, He cried out a shout of victory. And then he exhales. And then he dies. Now, how do we know that this was a shout of victory? We'll look at verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, to understand fully what happens here, we need to go back again to Genesis chapter 3. And remember, God had created everything in Genesis 1 and 2. It was perfect and pristine. And God created mankind and entered him into a a covenant. God said, you can have all this, you can live here forever and have personal fellowship with me as long as what? You obey me. This is what theologians, some theologians call the covenant of works. Because if Adam would have obeyed, we know, if Adam would have obeyed and kept the word of God, if he would have done what he was told to do, he would have been justified by his obedience and would have lived forever in perfect fellowship with God. And God gave him one commandment. One command. What is that? Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was it. And had he obeyed, He would have secured by his own efforts righteousness for himself and all of mankind forever. And God warned him, if you disobey me, what will happen? You will surely die. That you will experience physical death, spiritual death, which is separation from God and the wrath of God. Well, we know what happened, right? He failed. Satan tempted Eve, she ate. Adam, instead of doing what he was created to do, which was to protect his wife and lead her, he allowed her to eat, and then he ate as well. And the consequences, as we know, have been catastrophic. Not only did they become aware of their shame, but sin and death entered into creation, distorting and corrupting everything. But to make everything infinitely worse than that, mankind lost his fellowship with the God that created him. Mankind lost direct access to God. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like 
us, one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. He cast him out of his presence. To work the ground from which he was taken, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Mankind was expelled out of God's presence. And a cherubim was placed to keep mankind away from God and away from the garden and away from eternal life. Well, the temple of Jerusalem was a symbol of that very theology. The way that it was constructed was a symbol of this truth. Inside the temple, there were two rooms, a big room and a small room connected together. You had the holy place and then the smaller room at the end of it called the most holy place. Now, the holy place is where all the priests could come and go and, and perform their works, right? But the most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant rested. This was considered to be the throne of God. It was called the mercy seat of God. And, and, and so this is the room where, where they believed that the presence of God resided. That's what it represented, was the presence of God there. And, and what separated this These two places, what separated this consecrated holy space from the common holy place? A 30-foot wide, 60-foot tall, 4-inch thick curtain or veil. It weighed so much it took several hundred priests to maneuver it. And the curtain was a symbol of the barrier between God and man that was placed in the garden. And guess what was embroidered on the curtain that faced the holy place? Cherubim. Cherubim. The curtain, it was a visual symbol of the physical representation of a spiritual reality, that there is a barrier between God and and man, that there is a divide between a holy God and, and corrupt, sinful man. This, this curtain was a symbol of the fact that God and man did not have fellowship, that fellowship has been lost. But then it says that the moment Jesus died, this 30-foot wide, 60-foot high, 4-inch thick curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom, indicating this was supernaturally torn. Let's put all the pieces together then. Christ suffers the wrath of God in our place He loses fellowship with the Father as as God turns His back on Him. Jesus cries out in anguish, My God, why have you forsaken me? But then having completely exhausted the wrath of God that we deserve, Jesus then releases a loud shout of victory, and then He dies. And the moment that He dies, the curtain, the symbol of the barrier that separates a holy God from us, is torn into by God Himself, indicating that the way into the garden is open again. That the way into eternal life is open again. That the way into fellowship and intimacy with the God that we were created to be with is open again. Thousands of years of separation between God and man is now over. The war has been won. The battle is finished. Our foe is vanquished. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, death is swallowed up in victory. 
Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where, excuse me, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The battle is over, and Jesus is the victor. You see, Jesus didn't come into the world to be a conquering king for Israel. He came to be a conquering king for all of us. He didn't come to conquer the Romans. He came to conquer sin and death. And he didn't come to just save the Jews. He came to save all kinds of people. In fact, I want you to notice what, exactly what happens next. This, this should shock you, by the way. If you, were, if you were a first century Jew, this should shock you of what Mark records next. Verse 39 says, And then the centurion who'd been facing him saw... In this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There is so much to unpack here, but let me just briefly go through a couple of things. First of all, this is one more indication of Mark's book ends. Okay. If you've listened to this series, you've heard me talk about the fact that Mark uses a literary device that some people call sandwiching or book ending, where he takes similar events and then, you know, and sandwiches in between them, something that he's trying to communicate. For instance, the most, probably the clearest example of this is how the apostles are spiritually blind. Even though that they're saved, even though Christ is with them, they're still spiritually blind. And that, that occurs between chapters 8 and 10. Jesus, remember, heals a blind man, but He doesn't heal him all the way. He heals him initially just a little bit to where He, he can see, but, he, but, but not fully. And then Jesus fully heals him, Right? And then you have three incidents where Jesus declares that He is the Messiah, that He is going to be killed and resurrected. And all of the disciples in their blindness either ignore Him or deny what He's saying. And then at the end of this series, he, Jesus heals a man completely of his blindness. It was a point that Mark was making is that these people were spiritually blind. So we have, and we've seen multiple examples of these, this book ending to emphasize a point, right? Well, we see one right here, and it's centered on this expression, Son of God. Look with me all the way back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As we've talked about over and over again during this series, Mark has been declaring again and again that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God and that He has set out to prove His point. And what we see here is the Roman centurion proclaiming exactly that. Truly, this is the Son of God. See, what Mark is saying here is, I rest my case. I have proven my case. Because everything between verse 1 Chapter 1, verse 1, to 15, verse 39, all points to the same incontrovertible truth, that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, that He is God in the flesh, and that this is the gospel. The gospel that the eternal Son of God came into the world to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. That He lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, that was required. That He fulfilled the law on your behalf that you couldn't fulfill. And by His life, He earned for you a righteousness that didn't belong to you or that you, didn't, you couldn't earn on yourself, but a righteousness is required for fellowship with God. And then on the cross, 
In your place, He suffered the justice of God the Father that you deserve. And He bore in His body the terrible and awful wrath of God that you deserved and died so that you could have a place in the kingdom of heaven. And we ask, how do we avail ourselves of this then? How do we get this entrance into heaven? How, if He made it available, then how do we take advantage of this? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and turn from your sin and turn to God in faith and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Repent and believe that Jesus lived and died for you and entrust in Him and place all of your hope on Him and reverence Him and worship Him because the way is now open. And the promise then for all who do that your sins, all of them are washed away by the blood of Christ. All of them. But also you have a righteousness, a righteousness from Christ that's credited to you as your own, that you were clothed in the righteous robes of Christ, and now you can stand in the presence of God without fear. And because of Christ's righteousness, you're adopted in the family of God and granted eternal life. And this is for all people. Notice the very first person to confess Christ as the Son of God. I want you to see Him. Look at Him. It is not one of His followers. It's not one of His friends. It's not one of His family members. It's not even one of His countrymen. This person to declare the truth about who Christ is is not even Jewish. Look at Him. He's a Roman centurion participating in Christ's crucifixion. Not only was he a Gentile, he was a Roman soldier, one of the most hated people in all of the land. He was the enemy, and more than that, he was among the ones who was putting Christ to death. But it is he who is the first one to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you know what that means? It means that no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you have done, all are welcome at the foot of the cross and are invited to declare the truth about Christ. He indeed is the Son of God, the Messiah and the King. And the way is open to eternal life and fellowship with God is open because of the victory of Christ on the cross. Your salvation is bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. All you need to do is repent and believe the gospel. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.